Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast, sponsored by Propeller, the PR content and events company. My name is John Reynolds, the host. Later we're talking to the new Managing Director of Cara Manchester, Pete Metcalf. Uh, but first up, we're joined by Alex Bilmers, the editor of uh, Esquire. Thanks for joining me, Alex. Uh, first up, we're just going to run through a few news stories, then talk more broadly about uh, publishing and Esquire. Now, Brexit continues to be all over the media, dominating the airwaves and uh, newspapers. I presume Esquire doesn't cover uh, Brexit day to day. Uh, but presumably your readers are interested in Brexit. How do, you, how do you cover it and how do you bring added value to Brexit? Um, it's a, that is an interesting question uh, for me at this precise moment because um, if you'd asked me that maybe six months ago, I would have had to struggle with an idea of how uh, Esquire could, as you say, add something new or different to this uh, to the debate around Brexit. But we've relaunched the magazine recently mm-hmm. um, and one of the big decisions we had to take was how to you know how do we how does esquire what does esquire mean in terms of current affairs and the answer that i came up with was we don't cover it um absolutely our readers are um hyper informed people um you know i i i don't know about you but i often feel slightly over informed yeah. about uh, brexit um and uh, and other news stories um and that's not our um area of expertise if we're honest um we do not have reporters on the ground every day uh, following the brexit debate um the bbc does that um the guardian does that uh, the telegraph does that the mail does that twitter does that sure. um and i feel um that given we don't really have, if we are honest with ourselves, we don't have anything to add to that debate. Yeah. Uh, so probably we should stay out of it and concentrate on what we really do best. And when I think when people come to Esquire, when readers or audience audiences come to Esquire, they're not coming to hear more about Brexit. They're probably coming to escape uh, from some of the, uh, let's face it, endlessly depressing news uh, about Brexit. Um, and that's what we're here for. We're, we're here to offer something uh, uh, different and uh, hopefully uh, slightly uh, more entertaining. So you made a conscious effort to be a Brexit-free zone. But you, I mean, you do interview MPs. I know it's on the website you had an interview with Chuka Amuna, which we, is kind of a lot about his, as much about his clubbing days in Brixton <laughs> than about politics. I mean, is that... So you, you, do, interview, uh, you, do, you do interview MPs, don't you? We, we, we used to interview MPs. Um, I think that we're highly unlikely to ever interview an MP again because that is a kind of fundamental part of this new relaunch is to say what kind of magazine should Esquire be? Should it be or what kind of media brand should Esquire be? Should it be one that tries to be all things to all men? Should it be trying to cover uh, politics and sport and uh, anything else you can think of? Um, or should it be focusing more narrowly? And my calculation is that in the current media landscape, niche is better than general interest. Um, my calculation is that the days of the kind of um, men's uh, media brand that covers the waterfront um, are over. Um, mm. And that, in fact, what we should be doing is focusing on what we do best. Um, we should be uh, cultivating a uh, readership that um, is... Um, of kind of aficionados okay. of people who really care uh, about about this 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 narrow thing that we're trying to do, which is upmarket men's lifestyle. Okay, we'll we'll go into talk more detail about the, the sure, relaunch of changes. Just just very quickly, touched on Brexit. And the other thing I wanted to ask you, we haven't really talked about fashion on this podcast, but um, <laughs> in the world of advertising, I tend to go to quite a few conferences, see men in the thirties, forties, and fifties tend to have the same get-up all the time. They wear brown brogues, smart trousers. Never a tie in a blazer. Is that, is that acceptable in 2019? Or I think that, be wearing a tie. It's a uniform. 
Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, 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 that is what uh, men in the media and um, and I'm sure in other uh, uh, creative industries um, tend to wear now. I think you even often consult. I don't know if you consult a lawyer or if you meet a doctor or something. They're wearing they're they're, they're effectively wearing the same thing. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's 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 a uniform. Uh, it's uh, possibly slightly boring to always wear a white shirt open at the neck and a blue blazer. And not not that I'm describing your getup currently, uh, John. Um, I do wear I wear a tie, um, but that's probably uh, I, I'll tell you exactly what that is. It's called an affectation, uh, and um, mm. I'm all in favour of affectations. But then I would be as a kind of men's style uh, editor. Um, I'm not in favour of telling people what to wear. I think people. I think we're past that. People should should wear what 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 they will. Um, I will say that I'm encouraged by the fact that uh, the, the if if you want the hot if you want a scoop on the hot news from the uh, catwalks of Milan and Paris, mm. tailoring. Uh, is making a long overdue return, uh, pushing aside the kind of athleisure tracksuit look that we've become familiar with. And, uh, and, and speaking personally, I'm all in favour of that. So that's a tip then, tailoring. Tailoring, that's your tip. Okay, and uh, ties optional. Okay, that, that, that's good advice. I'm sure people will heed that. So you touched on the changes you've made. You've been editor since, I think, uh, 2010. Yep, end uh, of 2010. You've recently moved, the magazine's moved from monthly to bi-monthly. Mm-hmm. Why, is this, why is Esquire still an important magazine for readers and advertisers? Um, because it is still, it still represents the pinnacle of um, lifestyle and style journalism um, in this country. And I would say, I mean, of course I would say, but I believe um, in the world. Um, there is no uh, better uh, literary style magazine available. And there is still, and always has been, and I think increasingly is, um, an interest, a passion uh, among men for uh, style and for the finer things in life and for something substantial to read about that. We take those things uh, more seriously than any anyone else, but also I hope we do it with a sort of irreverence um, and a wit and a, and always in the knowledge that there are more important things in the world, but that doesn't mean you have to think about those things all the time. So just talk about, at the start, you, you said you're unlikely to interview MPs again. Mm. Is there anyone else you're not? Is there any other section of society who you're not going to interview apart of these changes? I mean, I don't want to make any sort of rash statements. So, 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 uh, um, it's not that I will never in, uh, interview an MP again. What it is is that we, we, you know, we used to try and do everything, mm. um, and we used to try. You know, you'd think, what are men interested in? I mean, it's not just men either anymore because we're, we're read by quite a lot of women. But what what are people interested in? And of course, people are interested in a vast array of different things. Um, but as a general interest magazine in the age of the internet, I do think one is slightly banging one's head against the old brick wall because um, if you are, I don't know who, which football, or if you even care about football, but if you're a Manchester United fan, I am, yeah. you are, good guess. Okay, if you're a Manchester United fan, you have a range of options. Uh, 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 you can look at, you know, there's, there's the Manchester United's own media, uh, web- websites and TV channels mm-hmm. and magazines. Mm-hmm. And then there's the m- huge sports media, both digitally and in print and on television and on the radio. And what, at what point does Esquire... Uh, figure in that as, as uh, why are we trying to, uh, to to attract you as a Manchester United fan as a Manchester United fan you're already super served mm. by mm. the media or if your thing is finance or if your thing is fishing then you can get that elsewhere what do you want from Esquire and my uh, what I think people want from Esquire is men's style and lifestyle upmarket men, style and lifestyle content mm. um, and so that's what we're doing so I would say 
I'm not. Once upon a time, I would have been chasing an interview with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer now because mm. he's the biggest story in football at the moment mm. because he's just been confirmed as Manchester United manager. It's a great story. This, uh, the, you know, they were down in the dumps. Now mm. they're now they're flying high. Um, but but I think that there are better places mm -hmm. for. I would like to read that piece. Um, mm. uh, but I'm not in the business of trying to commission it now. Uh, whereas mm. once I was, because what I should be focusing on and the magazine should be focusing on is we should take a relentlessly focused approach to men's, as I keep saying, <laughs> at the risk of boring no. everyone, uh, no. luxury lifestyle. OK, but I mean, aren't the, the, the weekend newspapers kind of move into your territory, don't they? And, and they're obviously cheaper. You're £6 now. Yeah. Why would someone choose to read Esquire and not the weekend national newspapers, which are cheaper? The weekend national... I mean, if it's a consideration of, uh, of, of price, we, we cost £6. We're trying to attract a readership uh, that can afford six pounds. Uh, six pounds uh, to some people uh, is probably a lot of money, uh, but to the reader, uh, the Esquire reader, it's not a significant mm. amount of money. They can well afford to buy Esquire and also uh, the weekly uh, newspapers. I think that weekly newspapers have been trying to, uh, as as they say, uh, eat, eat the lunch of style magazines for maybe two decades now, mm. uh, at least uh, since they started launching sort of style supplements. Uh, uh, I don't think that they, uh, without one wishing to condemn anyone, uh, some of the, some of the stuff they do is great. They will never be able to compete with us in terms of the contributors, the photography, the the pro the production values. You simply can't produce a magazine as physically uh, beautiful as Esquire and distribute it to that many. Who are your top contributors at the moment, then? Who are they? Uh, in terms of, uh, I, I'm with the new issue sitting here on the table between us. Uh, and uh, the cover was shot by a woman called Cass Bird in uh, New York. She's probably one of the top five uh, fashion and portrait photog photographers in the, in the world. Okay. Um, our writers uh, that I'm working with this week have included um, Andrew O'Hagan, the yeah. uh, novelist, and and, uh, mm. uh, and uh, Giles Corrin, and Chimamanda Adichie, the, also the uh, 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 famous Nigerian novelist. I mean, these are substantial people writing original uh, Will Self, uh, but they do write for newspapers. Charles Corrin's a columnist for Times. Charles Corrin's well, I'm sure a lot of them, some of them write for newspapers, don't they? Maybe not all of them. Some of them do. And Andy O'Hagan doesn't write for okay. the British newspapers. Jim Amanda doesn't write for the British newspapers. Um, these are these are um, people that you, they, it's not that they don't write for anyone else. They write for the London Review of Books, or they may write mm -hmm. for the New Yorker. Mm -hmm. um, but um, Esquire is the only uh, magazine in uh, in Britain that, that those kind of people uh, are people on that level uh, write for. Um, okay. And so, I mean, just can you talk broadly about how people are consuming Esquire now? I mean, obviously, you're in various forms, website, mobile through Facebook. I mean, what's the, where does the future lie? I mean, where, where are the growth areas for, for people consuming Esquire? Um, well, it's all, those, it's all those things that you just mentioned, plus, uh, I would say, in the in, in IRL, in real life, as I say, because uh, our events business yes. is increasingly um, important to us. But, but you, you absolutely can, you can consume it on your phone, obviously. You can consume it on social media. Uh, you can buy the actual uh, uh, print magazine, and you can attend one of, the, uh, one of our events. We, we do a thing called Esquire Townhouse, which mm -hmm. is uh, a sort of uh, a three-day uh, sort of mini festival of ideas, uh, uh, of talks and demonstrations and supper clubs and all sorts of things like that. We do another thing called Esquire Evenings. Mm -hmm. uh, we do something called Esquire Self-Made, which is uh, to, uh, for uh, entrepreneurial um, younger, probably younger readers to come and hear the stories of uh, successful business people. Um, so we have an enormous number of um, 
I hate to use the uh, uh, um, marketing speak, but touch points. Uh, <laughs> that, is a mar- that is marketing <laughs> it speak. It is marketing speak, sorry. Hello. Before the show resumes, a quick word from Propeller, sponsor of the Media Marketing Podcast. Propeller provides PR content and events programs for companies operating in the media, marketing, advertising and technology sectors. In this part of the show, we speak to an industry leader to find out who or what has influenced their own career. And we also find out what advice they would give their younger self. My name is Philip Stelter. I'm the Global Chief Media Officer and UKMD for the Syzygy Group. We are an international full-service digital agency uh, aligning creative media and technology around the customer experience. Uh, We have a good reputation for being very transparent and agile. My business inspiration, I, I like to think, is success. I like to see things work. But if I'm, if I'm being really honest, it's probably around discomfort. Um, I like to find myself in places or situations I've not been before. So it's very inspiring. And I, I think, in, in general, it's why I moved to California to work in startups. It's why I've been in the UK working with people from around the world. And it brings out, I think, some of the best ideas when you're, when you're finding yourself outside of your comfort zone. The business advice I'd give my younger self would be to say yes more. Um, It seems like a simple thing, but taking chances and making more mistakes. Odds are nobody will remember them, but, you know, they seem fatal or big at the time. And then the other would be to to ask a lot of questions. Uh, Keep asking no matter what, however basic they seem. Um, The big picture matters, but without context or detail, actually, you you kind of lose credibility and you'll miss those, those little insights that really make the difference. I'd like to give a shout out to my team. I, that's the easiest thing is to say my, my team at Syzygy is amazing and they are the engine behind the, the agency. They are um, truly incredible. Personally, I'd, I'd put it out to, to Farhad Mohit, uh, who's the CEO of a, a startup in California, several actually. Um, he's failed his way through enough to finally hit a, an incredible success. He taught me how to, to think and create an atmosphere that it's frankly slightly insane and bold, but at the same time created an environment where anyone with an idea had a voice. And I think it's, it's inspirational and something we try to create in our agency. I listen to the Media and Marketing Podcast because it gives me insights that I wouldn't be able to find anywhere else. And I think that's an edge in the industry that is hard to find. If you want to discuss how Propeller can help you find the story at the heart of your business and amplify it to drive growth, then get in touch at info at propellergroup.com. Now, Back to the regular media and marketing podcast. So you've moved a lot away. I mean, when you first became editor, I, I can imagine you imagined that you'd be primarily focused on writing mm-hmm. and commission for the magazines. But now, yeah. uh, it's, it's, I guess it's a different beast, isn't it, in terms of what you're doing? Job has changed uh, almost beyond recognition. Uh, um, the, the, the idea when you're a young journalist uh, looking uh, at what the editor does, um, I mean, let me be frank. I, I thought that uh, being an editor would basically involve calling up fancy journalists like the one we just talked about in the morning, uh, mm-hmm. uh, chucking some cash at them to go and do uh, uh, go and do some nice uh, foreign reporting, uh, maybe review a couple of photographs of glamorous people, and then go for lunch. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I think if I'd got my jobs, maybe not unfortunately, because it might, it might have got boring or at least uh, un, uh, uh, injurious to one's health after a while, but uh, that's not what it's like. Uh, it, it, it is a 24-hour job, and it um, and there's, it's as much uh, about um, the business of publishing as mm-hmm. it is about the creative part. Um, it's about uh, the ambassadorial role that the mm-hmm. editor plays, and it's about spending easily 
and I would say considerably more time thinking about uh, the advertising, the digital side, the event side, as it is, as you say, about um, commissioning nice long features, much as I love doing that. We'll talk about the advertising bit shortly. Just in, in terms of younger readers, obviously a lot of younger readers are used to getting the media for free, aren't they? So they might... Uh, be horrified, well not horrified, but reluctant to shell out six pound. I mean, how do you how do you attract <laughs> or, or lure in uh, the younger demographic then? Uh, I mean, I, I, I I'm I'm sure you're right. Uh, um, uh, that younger readers are um, uh, accustomed to um, getting their content for free. I think that's a shame, personally. Um, but um, we supply an enormous amount of uh, content for free mm. uh, on the website, um, on social media. Um, I do think that the events are. Uh, well, I've no, I've seen with my own eyes that they do attract, um, uh, uh, they they attract both an audience of our age and a younger audience, mm. uh, men and women um, in their twenties. Um, I think that's a that's a. Um, I'm not an expert on sort of millennial habits or anything, but no. I think that that's a. Um, that's something that they do that we didn't do in a way. They they go to events, they go to these things, okay. um, and um, so I think there's a tremendous amount of content available to them. Um, and also, I would say to younger readers that for six pounds every other month, um, yeah, you do sure. get a really good deal. Okay, and just I mean, you, you touched on advertising there. I mean, I noticed on the website you've still got those high-end advertisers like Gucci. Mm-hmm. Are, are they still spending? like they were or have you noticed any brexit impact or are advertisers spending less or or not uh in digital they're spending more than they used to um because um because that's the way the world is going Mm -hmm. uh in um in print um nobody i think would uh pretend to you that it's easy to sell uh print advertising uh in 2019 but we are doing um and i don't take personal credit for this, but the, sure. the people at Hearst yeah. um, are doing, I would, I think, an amazing job uh, of of banging the drum for print and explaining to um, advertisers. Um, I mean, the truth is, uh, th- those big ones like Gucci, Armani, mm-hmm. uh, we don't take them for granted. We're Prada, we don't take them for, for granted for a second. But they uh, they have been staunch in their support of Esquire for many years and continue to be. Um, I think that some of the maybe uh, less famous fashion houses are need need more work. Uh, you know, okay. They need more persuading. But we are doing a good job of persuading them, and and we uh, we will live or die based on our our ability to attract luxury advertisers. Um, and uh, so far, so good. Okay. And I had a quick look on the uh, look on the website. There is some sponsored content on there. Is I don't know. You have like list, don't you? Like the ten best rain jackets, and then you've got links to the various. Retailers, I mean, yeah, that's that, that... not so much sponsored content as um, as sort of retail, I suppose. Uh, yeah. uh, um, uh, and we absolutely believe that um, one of the things that uh, we should be focusing on in as we move forward is, um, you know, if you come to a, a website now, if you're especially as you mentioned, if you're younger. Um, and you're reading about these great new shoes or why you should own mm. this kind of jacket, the notion that you then have to leave the website, go to another website and try mm. and find the jacket, it doesn't really make any sense anymore. So if we can uh, 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 provide a link to, to mm. the retailer, then that's what we should do, and that's what we are doing. Well, that's kind of, a, again, going back to when you started the job, that's kind of a world away from Esquire, from my understanding, had this heritage of all these kind of great writers from yesteryear, like Hemingway and mm-hmm. William Burroughs, 
but nowadays people are going on there and you flog in trainers and things like that. That seems a bit of a. <laughs> I don't know if that's. I, I we, we still I, and as I was describing, we still have fan, brilliant writers. Sure. Uh, um, I'm not going to make any gro- great you know claims that they're this Hemingway of the day or whatever. But I think that um, a lot of these people who write for us are um, some of the some of the finest uh, uh, writers around. Um, it was always a mixture of uh, a, a literary magazine um, mm. and a style magazine. Even if you go back to the 1930s, there are adver- adver- adverts for shaving kits mm-hmm. and raincoats and um, brogues, and um, and it had it was filled with advice on you know how to make a cocktail, how to how to live well, mm-hmm. how to how to live enjoyably uh, as a successful man. And th- that if they'd had the ability to uh, that the reader could have clicked on the page and bought the raincoat, they would have used it. Um, so that's all we're doing, really. Okay. So, I mean, and in terms of competition, who do you see your biggest competitor this, uh, today? Is, is it from like the gaming industry? Is it Netflix? Is it the magazines? Or is it, I guess... Netflix is a good call. I think it's anyone who's trying to... Uh, we, we, we're talking to uh, uh, men at a certain uh, level in their lives, successful mm. men, uh, erudite um, worldly men and they tend to be uh, time poor mm. um, they're busy people mm. uh, and uh, we all know that feeling of uh, uh, it, it, it just getting half an hour or 20 minutes in your day uh, mm. to do something for yourself is very difficult and then so I think we're competing with the leisure industry at large and the media industry at large we're competing with high-end gyms because that's where a lot of men choose to spend their 20 minutes or their half an hour yeah. we're competing with as you say Netflix uh, we're competing with I don't know Twitter we're complete we're competing with all these things that are that are trying to grab your attention and uh, and so and what we're saying is look we understand that all that stuff's there. Of course, you're going to watch Netflix. You should watch Netflix. It's brilliant. You, you, you're probably going to watch Sky Sports. You're probably going to uh, look at the financial news. You're going to do all these things. We are trying to provide a sort of haven where you can go and relax and enjoy uh, mm-hmm. half an hour reading about um, entertaining and enlightening stuff. Okay. So a few weeks ago, we had uh, Dylan Jones. Mm-hmm. You used to obviously work at GQ. I he think. didn't seem to acknowledge the existence of Esquire. <laughs> I think the point he was trying to make was where the GQ is the only um, monthly men's magazine on the market. I mean, mm-hmm. are, you, are you a, an admirer of his and GQ? I'm a huge admirer of um, Dylan's. Uh, he was uh, uh, not my first boss, but he's probably the most uh, important boss uh, in mm-hmm. my uh, career um, I'm st- we're still actually believe it or not uh, uh, some people don't believe it uh, we're still good friends uh, I consider him a mentor um, mm. and uh, I'm uh, hugely proud of the work I did under him at GQ um, it GQ is now the only um, general interest um, men's magazine and we are uh, and so I can see why he doesn't necessarily consider us a competitor because we are the only um, upmarket literary style magazine. It's a we are different from mm. them. Uh, we're not trying to do the same thing. They're still doing the um, kind of shock and amaze on every page. Uh, they're taking a much more mainstream approach. They have mm. um, their current issue has I forget his name now, but he's a boxer, very popular boxer um, on the cover. Um, we would not put him on our cover. And, I, and our next cover doesn't even have a celebrity on, on it, and Dylan wouldn't put wouldn't do that with GQ. I just think they're completely different beasts. Okay. It's it's totally possible to enjoy 
um, Netflix and also the BBC or something. They're not the, they're not trying to do the same thing. And I, I think that they are the BBC and we're Netflix. Okay, now not to there was an interview. Oh, you were on stage, I think, about six or seven years ago. I don't really want to dwell on this because it was a long time ago. But there was a backlash. To, and I think you're on stage with people who will probably listen to this podcast, including uh, Nicola Mendelssohn, who works at Facebook now. And you said the women we feature in the magazine are ornamental. Now, I know this was a long time ago, so I don't <laughs> want to dwell on that. But my question is, if you had said that today mm. in a sort of fevered yes. uh, Twitter atmosphere, do you think that the backlash could have been more, more severe? I think if I'd said it today, I'd probably be out of a job. Um, yeah, well, that's the question I was going to ask. Yeah. And... Um, it was uh, probably a slightly stupid thing to say, uh, and it, it certainly—I certainly didn't put it very well. Uh, I do regret saying it. Um, I don't think I was entirely wrong. Uh, Just in very quickly, tell them what you said. Then you said you said. I can't oh, remember the my, I, I can't I remember the exact here, exact, exact words. Um, do you have the quote? Well, I've got, I think the, the women we feature in the magazine are ornamental. He said, I could, you said, I could lie to you if you want and say we are interested in their brains as well. We are not. They are objectified. But I, I think, yeah. And, and, I, moved, and I moved on yeah. to say that uh, that was true of the men in the magazine as well and, and that all of them were treated as, uh, because of the way they look, mm-hmm. uh, men, women, and, and, and everything else in the magazine. Um, I do regret it because I don't think it's true. Um, I don't think uh, uh, that is how we looked at the women in the magazine at that time uh, or the men. I think we gave them more credit than that. Um, however, I was just trying to make a point about the fact that magazines are about how things look. Mm, okay. um, I do. I, I mean, I regret saying. I wish I hadn't said it. It was. It has dogged me ever since. As these things, as these things tend to <laughs> do, and it later. comes and it comes up in uh, in interviews, and people bring it up, and I and I, and I kind of regret that uh, you know that I laid myself open to that charge. Um, I hope that we demonstrate every month in the magazine and every day on the website that we're not uh, sexist uh, or misogynist or any of those uh, or uh, any of those things um, because we're really not, and we have tried to do some work to repair any damage I might have done with that uh, rather foolish uh, comment. We did a, a, a special issue, a sort of feminism issue, um, which um, which actually went down really well. And uh, I, I, I just think it was a, a probably a, a foolish thing to say. It, it's almost, it's quite nice to have the chance occasionally to sort of <laughs> lay it to rest. Every year. Yeah. And you also said that women's magazines perpetuate negative images of women. Do you still think that then too? No, I don't. Uh, I think the world's changed a lot for the better since then. Uh, okay. um, and I think that women's magazines do a lot of uh, work to... Uh, to make to 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 try and uh, make women feel better about all that stuff, and I think some of the stuff they do on body image is really uh, important. And but I don't think it was being done necessarily before. And you have women. I presume you've got women on staff here, have you too? I I, I mean, uh, half the office is is okay. uh, female, and uh, uh, most of our. Oh, oh, not most. That's not true. I mean, the fashion director is a woman. The features director is a woman. The photo director is a woman. Uh, many of our writers are women. Uh, uh, Two of our four designers are women. Okay. Uh, so, yes, we have um, lots of women. Okay. And how, I mean, kind of in a nutshell, how optimistic are you for the future of Esquire? Obviously, you're part of Hearst. Hearst did shut recently Reveal magazine. 
Um, I mean, do you think Esquire will be still a printed magazine in five years' time? I absolutely think that Esquire will be a printed magazine in five years' time, and 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 much and for much longer than that. I'm actually extremely optimistic. Um, I know that that goes against the grain of so much uh, talk we hear about the death of print, and uh, I just don't think in the case of magazines like Esquire, and I don't think we're unique by any means in this. Uh, which you know we've doubled down I, uh, recently sure. on print. We have produced a magazine that is uh, printier, or to use a n- non-word, uh, than uh, than it than it ever was before. Um, we uh, we occupy uh, happily for us and are, and, are, and and are determined to, to to go even further into this uh, a, a quite privileged uh, part of the market in that we are a luxury uh, magazine uh, with a niche uh, which is um, not being. Uh, attempted elsewhere in the market at the moment which is very upmarket men's style i mean there is men's style of course there is um and there are luxury magazines but we're the one that focuses on those two things and i think that being a niche and being in a luxury uh part of the market are two of the best places you could be okay um, i've got a copy um, would you happily if if hypothetically if the printed magazine did shirt would you still carry on as editor or would that be a bit less of a job really or not? that wouldn't be up to me <laughs> well no but would you be happy or would you, would you see that as a, a less well of i a don't job? think it's going to happen so, okay. so so um i don't think it's something i have to worry about i mean i think we we, we really have spent a lot hearst okay. has spent a lot of uh time money uh, uh, resources on creating this new uh, print magazine which is very different from the old one and sure. we've only published one issue so far so I'm not sitting around thinking oh god what, what if they close the print magazine because yeah. because we've only just relaunched it right Alex that's fantastic and do listen next because we've got uh, Pete Metcalf thank you hello before the show resumes a quick word from Propeller sponsor of the media marketing podcast Propeller provides PR content and events programs for companies operating in the media, marketing, advertising and technology sectors. In this part of the show, we speak to an industry leader to find out who or what has influenced their own career. And we also find out what advice they would give their younger self. My name is Catherine Jacob. I am CEO of a cinema advertising company called Pearl and Dean, and we bring brands close to film. My Business inspiration is actually the people that I work with, and that includes the team at Pearl and Dean and the clients we work with, be they media agencies, creative agencies, or direct clients. Because I think in the world that we live in, I mean, film is very interesting. The slate changes every year. So you're dealing with a a mixed bag all the time. So that's really interesting because it gives you the opportunity to kind of refresh what you do and talk to clients in a different way. And if you talk to a client like Sarah Benison at Nationwide about the challenges that she faces and how she's handling her business, she's got a completely different set of you know, needs to someone at Audi, for example. So I think it's inspirational because it's always changing and we're very lucky in cinema that we've pretty much got something for everyone, be you, I don't know, eBay or eSure. We're very lucky that we have a broad canvas. And so my inspiration is kind of the just the variety and how our team reacts and how our clients interact with us. The business advice I would give to my younger self would be to be resilient because our business is 
very up and down. It's like a roller coaster, you know, one minute you're having a really great time and then there's an unfortunate recession that you have nothing to do with and or circumstances change. And I'd say develop your resilience. And also I am somewhat of a practitioner of uh, diversity and equality. I'd say to young younger women, own your space and don't be afraid to ask for the career that you want and that you deserve. I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Sue Uniman, who is my co-author on The Glass Wall, because I have known her so long I can't remember meeting her. And she has always had my back and always been a cheerleader for me. And I just find her inspirational and uh, and challenging at the same time. We're very different people, but I love the perspective that she, she brings. And I don't know anybody who's had an interaction with Sue who hasn't come out wiser or more directed or just feeling that they have um, achieved something. So that's who my shout out is to. I listen to the Media and Marketing podcast because it's very easy in a very siloed environment. You know, I work in um, cinema and film, so it's very easy to get absorbed into that world. And what I love about the Media and Marketing podcast is it takes you out of your world and gives you insight into other bits of the business that actually you might not have any interaction with or that you don't have a full understanding of. And, and that's why I love it, because it gives me a glimpse into another world. If you want to discuss how Propeller can help you find the story at the heart of your business and amplify it to drive growth, then get in touch at info at propellergroup.com. Now, back to the regular media and marketing podcast. Now I'm joined by Pete Metcalf, who is the new managing director of the Manchester, Manchester division of CARA, the media agency. Uh, for transparency's sake, I should just point out that I have done some work for Dentsu Aegis, the parent company of CARA in the past. Uh, thanks a million for joining me, Pete. You are very welcome. So you were appointed managing director October last year. Can you just tell the listeners uh, a bit about your background and perhaps what's been on your uh, to-do list since you were appointed? No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Um, looking forward to having a brief chat. Um, so, as you mentioned, I was appointed in October last year. Um, brief potted history of me and my experience here. Um, I've been here in 10th year uh, yeah. this year, man and boy. So I joined on the graduate scheme ha- after coming off a, a sales uh, role that wasn't working for me. Um, got into the digital team and from there have just gone gone through the brands and, and grown through the Denso just North network. Um, so previously I prospect and, and over the last three years I've had a role as head of digital within the Cara brand and then as you mentioned appointed as uh, MD in October. In terms of what's on my to-do list, uh, a lot more I suppose is the first point. Sure. You know I've worked with many clients, many partners, many people over my time um, but the sheer volume of people getting in touch has been quite a step change you know it, I see that as quite exciting one of the things that drives me is meeting new people talking to people within the industry about opportunities we can work on together and you know hearing client challenges finding new ways we can support them you know how we can differentiate what we do for them is really exciting so the to-do list has grown but it's a more diverse and exciting to-do list I suppose. So you've already in your media career you've just worked at Aegis or, or 
denser Aegis now, and obviously you're latterly, you're, uh, latterly you had a digital uh, role, uh, uh, managing role. How, how is the, what's the difference between your current role now? I mean, I guess it's a big leap, is it? Or? Yeah, so I think um, in my previous roles in iProspects, I was responsible for a department. So, you know, a lot of people management, a lot of product innovation and a lot of, um, you know, growth through a channel. When I moved into the CARA role three years ago, it was mm-hmm. a much more strategic role. So it was very much working with our CARA clients on their digital agendas and taking them through um, new opportunities from a digital perspective, whether that be on a one-to-one performance channel level or whether that be an all-encompassing digital transformation. Who are the clients then? Just give the listeners a flavour. Uh, so historically within Caro I've worked across, um, in my previous role, obviously now lots more, but in my previous role my focus was on clients such as Holland and Barrett, um, Halfords, Thomas Cook, Music Magpie, Barrett Homes, so a, a nice diverse range of clients. Um, but I think the key difference, as I mentioned, was it was very much a strategic role of getting involved at key moments of change and when clients needed digital support. Mm. The new role is, you know, all-encompassing and, and the, the key difference is more people. You know, my strategic role, I had no direct reports, really. It was about working with all the teams. How many um, direct reports have you got now? So now, uh, with our recruitment round that we'll go through this year, it'll just be over 65, um, depending on our latest graduate day, which is next week. Um, but so people is one thing um, but also uh, kind of dipping my toe back into what you would call traditional media is certainly something that's new to me okay. having having worked primarily throughout my career on digital um, it's quite exciting actually to kind of you know, new media to me is established media to others, I suppose is the yeah, best way of putting it nice so um, I'm pretty excited about getting more involved in that Okay, that's fantastic. So on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the current status of, of media agencies and some of the challenges that they face. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess uh, one of the arguments is, is Densui, just like a lot of the big holding groups, uh, some could see is a bit, are a bit big, uh, a bit flabby, a bit unwieldy. And obviously, media agencies generally are facing questions uh, about things like transparency. Mm-hmm. There's also a trend of, of in-housing too. Uh, I mean, what do you think the biggest challenge for media agencies are, t- are today, Pete? Um, obviously, you touched on some you know, fairly pertinent points that we're, we're facing, but I think, you know, from my perspective, we are a network agency and that does come with uh, scale. But the differentiating point for us is our operating model. You know, I'm sure that in previous podcasts, I know you've had some of my colleagues on, but you know, we are differentiated in our operating model. One PL means that we are able to operate in a much more agile fashion. It means that as we bring capabilities on, we can execute them at pace, and it also means that we can be more transparent in where you know the the uh, where that kind of cost might ladder up to. Um, I think transparency is an industry mm-hmm. uh, issue. I think, you know, we all know that a lot of that is born out of programmatic and yeah. programmatic was ultimately when it first came to the fore a bit of a race at the bottom in terms of efficiency, which has now led to some, you know, fairly, not, not so much now, but previously some fairly dark practices. We've been addressing that for, you know, three, four years. Mm-hmm. We've got some, some strong tools that we use and some best practice that we have in place in terms of brand safety, transparency, um, and commercial models that we work with on clients to ensure that, you know, we have end-to-end transparency. 
Um, so I wouldn't say that as, as much of a pressing issue for us in our in the dense we just north office. You know, speaking uh, okay. from, from our experience, in housing is one. Yeah. So yeah, we we experienced that last year within Carrum Manchester, definitely. So one of our key clients, Manchester Airport Group, of you know and others, but that's probably the biggest one of note. Um, in housed a, a kind of a number of the services that we'd done for them previously. Mm. For me, that's about being open and you know honest about capability so if our client wants to in-house and we can offer them consultative support to do that why not help them you know why be a a barrier to that happening media agencies have to evolve the landscape's different you know the the talent that clients now have in their business that are Mm. senior are practitioners you know they're people that have done the do so there is always an inevitability about clients wanting to in-house so for me it's about embracing that it's about flipping our model a little bit so we're more of a professional services business that are Mm. consultative and not just a media buying house and that's something that we've certainly got some ideas on for this year okay and just so you're still working with Manchester Airport then in some yeah so in a, in a small capacity we, we have a consultative role but you know our large execution of media on a buying basis is something they wanted to in-house and and mm-hmm. that's something that you know we will find more of and they won't be the first they, they, you know they weren't the first and they certainly won't be the last so you mentioned the consultancies. You mentioned, I mean, there's been well documented over the past few years about consultancies moving into traditional media areas and maybe some creative. Yeah. Uh, but you're kind of fighting back against that, well, offering similar services, traditional services that they offer too, the consultancies. Yeah, so I mean, really, over the past two years in particular, um, Cara Manchester and the clients that we have, and Densuie just north generally, you know, we've been very much at the intersection of media, data and tech. Um, and it is that data and tech element that consultancies obviously have a lot of heritage in um, as well as you know having the relationships at C-suite that they need to to kind of have the conversations that that leads to a media conversation from my perspective you know we have the the talent and we have the experience and we have the relationships with you know the, the kind of technology companies that that such as Google is a good example you know, uh, where we can actually start to deliver something on a par and that's something that we've seen like I say over the past 18 months whether that's working with clients on a, a full kind of transformation of their data uh, cloud infrastructure or whether that's as simple as creating an audience in Google 360 and executing it um, but that said I think you know, whilst the services might be similar, yeah. I think the approach is different, and that's something that we need to work on. You know, simply put, I think that our relationships can be a little bit too transactional, and we need to move them to a more strategic relationship. And our tier one clients would all argue that that is how we work. We just need to do it with all of our clients. Okay, so we, we touched briefly on the challenges of media agencies. Very quickly, there's obviously been loads written, uh, document, well documented about uh, some of the challenges uh, facing the platforms, Facebook and Google, whether it's um, fake news or, uh, or with Facebook and, and um, brand safety on YouTube. Are, are clients still wary about some of these problems? Or, or do you think that the inroads at uh, Facebook and Google have kind of put those uh, concerns to bed now? Yeah, I think, you know, Last year in particular was a, a bit of a browbeater for Facebook. You know, I think whilst they're a, they are the size and, and scale that they yeah, are, sure. no one business can take the hits that they did and come out of it um, shining. I think from my perspective, you know, 
we had Facebook in last week and they're on a, a very positive reinforcement message around you know the good they do within the network and the platform and that is certainly something that I w- would agree with um, whether they've turned a corner you know usership of Facebook is down in some age cohort so probably not um, but equally you know as a as a as a customer and a consumer platform it's where the audiences are you know so I I don't see them going anywhere audiences will stay Google are slightly different you know they are diversifying the product their offering is changing we partner with them quite heavily in in other ways over just search which is kind of the primarily primary way we interact with them Um, but you know they are changing their model and they're quite open to, to that discussion. We, you know, as an example, are working on a, a specific project w- with Google that's um, a Dan Swedish North project, which is just about finding ways to collaborate and partner that isn't just a, a kind of media relationship. So that, that's an exciting opportunity. Facebook, who knows? You know, I think next, this year and next will be a, an interesting kind of transition for Facebook in terms of the, their consciousness with the public. Yeah, okay, that's great. Uh, okay, and uh, let's just touch on the IPO diversity figures which came out recently. Yeah. Um, I guess general consensus, uh, one reading of it, is quite a, a, a bleak read. Uh, I think the IPO has set ambitious targets of 40% of senior staff to be female in media agencies by uh, 2020. Um, just approximately what percentage of staff in Carra Manchester are female at the moment then, So we... Um in May last year when our report came out, you know, we're, we're actually above that already. Um, so we're at 44, just over 44%. Um, you know, whilst that's great and that's something that we're proud of and, you know, that's something that Rachel, who's now uh, my predecessor and managing director of Dental Regis North, um, is absolutely leading the charge on. I think there's still more to go. You know, if you look at the initiatives that we've got, such as the One Network, which is our gender equality network, the Women in Leadership, which is a, a, a project which is again close to, to Rachel, which we're we're driving through okay. the business. You know, we are looking to to push that that agenda. But I think that you know it, it isn't just about gender. You know, ethnic diversity, neurodiversity. I think for me, diversity brings you know. M- more to the table in terms of Mm. perspectives, ideas and opportunity for a media agency to evolve, you know, and being able to to invest and find those people that that offer that diversity and inclusion is getting harder, you know, Mm. it is something that is is, um, difficult based on the industry and the pipeline of recruitment that we have so I think the industry has has a role to play in that but when I look at our kind of focus for this year, mm. we're certainly looking to put things in place to make sure that we're focusing on diversity more generally. Okay, I think generally, I've noticed, I've been to a few media agencies, a- agencies recently, and uh, average age seems to be like late 20s maybe, early mm-hmm. 30s. You don't see an awful lot of people sort of over 40 or 50, particularly females. Yeah. I guess that's quite, I mean, I don't know. I think maybe media agencies, um, maybe older women move to um, work at publishing on the other side but there's a yeah. trend where you don't see those old women working in, in media agencies is that something you're aware of? Or? Um, I think you know obviously talking outside of um, our universe that's something that, that isn't necessarily as much of an issue here we've just taken on uh, a 
P- a product called PDIQ, which was a consulting product that was led um, by Liz Lavelle. She has built her own business over time. She's been in media a long time, and she's now come into the Dentsu operation. You know, Rachel's a, a good example yeah. of someone who's probably... Um, uh, you know, who's talked before about uh, having uh, more senior people in in senior roles that that are um, over a certain age. If you look at our leadership team here in Manchester, we do have that. So I think you know it's something that that is is less palpable here. But I do agree that as an industry, it is something that that is 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 definitely needs to change. Okay, that's fantastic. And finally, just I mean, what, can you just give us a brief overview of what the next 12 months holds in store for you and, and Cara Manchester? Yeah, so I think, you know, we have had a lot of success over the last four or five years, exponential growth, um, a lot of change, a lot of opportunity. You know, digital has been the heartland of that growth. We're, we're, we're about 75% digital from a Cara Manchester perspective. For me, I want to continue that, but actually start to kind of go back to some of the more uh, established or traditional media channels and, and start to think a bit differently about that as first and foremost. Um, more client wins. So Co-op was a great momentum builder, winning that at the back end of last year, going into this year. We've got more clients on the horizon, probably about six pitches currently. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, and growing our relationships with clients like I say so that we're on a more strategic level not a transactional level and investing in our people you know making our people um, rise to the top delivering the leaders of the future that we need in the kind of next evolution of a media agency that is fantastic Pete that's great thanks very much thanks for having me